Hello everybody, this is Emperor Nuro and his apocryphal marketing tales. Mind the road, mind your coffee, and let's get it on! For this episode of the podcast, I initially thought I'd urge you to think outside the bun. Shave time? Move the way you want, just do it. Go places, belong anywhere, and overall, live better. But before you could snap, crackle, and pop, I changed my mind. Because without something I'll tell you about today, you ostensibly can't do any of the above. October 2022. Formula One Championship is gradually revving to a close. The title hunt is long over with Max Verstappen bagging his second back-to-back title and proving a worrisome trend. Once you've clambered under the F1 throne, there's no way your tush is booted off at next year. Which is bad news for Formula 1 fans. But grumpiness aside, it's the United States Grand Prix. Big sporting events become even bigger when hosted by the States. Even something as predictable as a string of compact, state-of-the-art, single-seater trolleybuses, typically abbreviated as a Formula 1 race, is no exception. Except this time, the Austin, Texas crowd's mood is anything but festive. The Formula One paddock mourns the sad death of one of its very own. But wait, technically, the deceased wasn't a famed race car driver. Nor was he a CEO of a filthy rich automaker, though he was indeed filthy rich. To make matters even worse, he wasn't even a big-time socialite. Rather, a reckless, loathing and dodging public hangouts, media appearances, the glitz of sponsorship bashes, and the yakety-yak of on-the-grid interviews. In short, the stark opposite of what a contemporary Formula One guy is expected to be. Dietrich Mateschitz has died, the founder and boss of 38 years of Red Bull. Now, I'm not the one to sentimentally lionize or canonize people. Normally, I'm happy to leave it to the church or ratings-oriented legacy media outlets. But not many of the living can boast establishing not just a new brand of something that's long obsolete and ridiculously overrated, or a competitive company poised to steal your data and coax you into getting a precarious vaccine, but an entire category in the market or rather reinvented, which is exactly what Mattachitz did in 1984. Soberingly enough, no one, save the contributors to his Wikipedia page, gave two hoots about his career preceding the nascence of Red Bull. No one was particularly eager to poke into his garage, chronicle his college dropout years with the zeal of a Nobel Prize wannabe lab scientist, or speculate about which fruit he preferred more apples or pears in a desperate quest to attribute his alleged genius to something. He didn't wear mysterious black turtlenecks like Steve Jobs, didn't scribble 11 autobiographies like Richard Branson, and wasn't caught using a truckload of steroids to bulk up like Jeff Bezos. Somewhat incredibly, unlike your garden-variety billionaire narcissist, it seemed like he never wanted to make it about himself. He never sought to make the brand he birthed 
synonymous with his name. Ironically, though, unlike most of those tycoons, he had every right to do so. So 1984 it was. I mean, not the novel, the pinch of novelty in a dollop of a re-energized, sleepless, dystopian future was involved, granted. Jet-lagged by his multi-hour flight to Thailand, Mataschitz, then an unremarkable marketer at Unilever, picked up a can of a purportedly revitalizing drink at the local airport. The concoction lived up to the billing and jolted the Austrian back awake. But more importantly, the experience kick-started a new brand. It dawned on Mataschitz that the beverage could become a hit back in his home country. Whipping up some corporate magic, wink-wink, he quickly found the manufacturer's CEO and quizzed him about the product. Dietrich was amazed to learn the energy drink was a huge favorite with local truck drivers and factory workers having to pull through regular night shifts. The CEO, named Chaleo, by the way, was no ordinary trading floor hustler, but a pharmacist who had actually devised the formula. Mattachitz thought on his feet. And his pair of feet proved shrewder than many people's 90 billion brain cells. The Austrian offered him a 50-50 partnership, technically a 49-49 partnership, with the remaining 2% of the share owned by Kaleo's son and CEO's role secured by Mataschitz. The two cut a deal. To think about it, he could have easily filched the idea altogether and founded his own brand without Kaleo or Chileo being ever aware of the trick, which would be the go-to option for most present-day corporations, you bet. Not for Mattishes, though. He wanted the originator of the drink to be on board with his plans and share the profit, crucially. That rare brand of honesty would accompany the beverage brand throughout its history, and go on to become a major part of reclusive Dutrecht's legacy. He essentially proved that business success and integrity aren't always an oxymoronic mismatch and not necessarily a dumb idea. What followed the unlikely Austrian ideal was Mataschitz in a nutshell. It took the rookie company three years to actually debut their product in Austria. Again, it could have tapped a sophomore food chemistry student to throw together a caffeine-laden belly wash recipe and Bob's your insomniac uncle. But Mataschitz thought differently. Not like in Apple's 97 TV spot, he actually did. In what would be an overkill for today's time-driven companies, for three long years, Mataschitz was sampling various lab concoctions until he sipped a mouthful that pleased his taste buds. In 1987, the first batch of the now-iconic Red Bull cans hit the shelves. But then, why Red Bull? I haven't really seen the name origin covered in marketing articles much, the answer is simple. Apart from caffeine, the drink contained a now not-that-secret sauce called taurin, an ingredient first extracted from ox bile in the 19th century. Hence the term taurin from Latin taurus or taurus, 
a bull, and hence the lettering on the can. Contrary to what the energy drink-loving Gen Z listeners may think, Red Bull didn't hit the ground running. Just like Liz Truss, who popularized the phrase by mangling it, after all, you can easily ram an amber-colored liquid down the throats of the proud countrymen of Haydn and Mozart, however original, can you? One would think it takes something really special, right? On the other hand, Austria is the birthplace of Sigmund Freud and a major junk science of the 20th century. So, it's complicated and iffy. Here's where the company first easy-peasy and elegant marketing stunt kicked into play. If you've listened to any of the previous episodes, you know I'm a big fan of unconventional moves, shock advertising, and guerrilla marketing. I vehemently advise it to my customers and cover it in my podcast. By the way, this episode is brought to you by my two fat friends, Ross and Dylan. Yes, they're fat. Yes, they insist on being called this way and none other. No, they aren't plump, stout, obese, overweight, or gravitational challenged because A, they're no longer kids, B, they don't want medical jargon to be indiscreetly used in non-medical settings, C, they love the English language and don't want to see it maimed and butchered by inane euphemisms that sound way more insulting than the original punchy, innocent adjective. They're proud of who they are and possibly of their impending diabetes and cardiovascular problems, and want you to be too. Ross and Dylan, true to their heart attack. What Red Bull pulled off was a textbook if only there were textbooks on it, and not as cliched as my description thereof, example of guerrilla marketing at its rawest. In the dead of night, the company would send their evidently Red Bull-loaded employees to plant crushed empty cans in bustling city neighborhoods with guaranteed food traffic, like on park benches. They also offered free samples to DJs to be able to leave the empty cans all over the clubs and bars. True to the guerrilla marketing's core principle, it didn't cost them squat. But the payoff was humongous. The move tapped into the social proof fallacy or social proof bias through this unrestrained attention marketing campaign. The club goers, for instance, would think, Hmm, everybody else is drinking it. Let's give it a shot. And give a shot they did. The company enjoyed their first ever growth spurt. Red Bull then doubled down on guerrilla marketing tactics and exploited its experiential variety. Just like Ludens from our episode 2, remember? Smiling, stereotypically hot girls would tour college campuses and give away cans of the energy drink that was touted as a surefire way to pull an all-nighter. Whether you're cramming for tomorrow's test or rigging up cheat sheets, which is more likely, or just having a late-night conversation of a lifetime in your dorm room. After all, even shooting the bull would be more enjoyable to a red bull. Yeah, they could brew some coffee, but it's not really fashionable, is it? 
and takes time and effort and a kitchen, not least of all. Red Bull, on the other hand, came in a nifty can, room temperature, easily handheld, and a mere fizzy pop away. It did the trick big time. Now, I'm not advertising anything or anyone, God forbid, except Ross and Dylan. Not in this episode, anyway. So, if you're under 18 years of age, forget about energy drinks. Research findings are inconclusive. That's often a byword for lazy. But then again, the only reason you may have smashed that play button is that my handle is one letter away from some trending rappers. After the brand finally exploded onto the international scene, they used the same giveaway guerrilla marketing shtick everywhere they went. It was a blustery day. I remember flocking with a couple dozen other applicants on the lawn of a college quad during an intense admissions campaign, trading jokes, banter, and high school level rumors when a minicar pulled up. It featured Red Bull's unmistakable paint scheme and a grotesque rooftop mounted can. A pair of fit and swimsuit model looking girls and minis strutted out of it and toward our little buzzing pack. There's a bunch of hicktown teenage idiots. We thought maybe they wanted to hook up, but sadly, it wasn't a mediocre Netflix rom com, but a Red Bull PR stunt. As soon as the girls approached us, they unzipped a large backpack and fished a handful of cans out of it. Hardly had a popped mine open, if it's free, I'll take three, right? When I heard a guy from a nearby huddle go, last year I heard a high school grad drank two of these and bought the farm. I almost choked mid-gulp. I instantly quit eyeballing the girls. You know, some eastern countries used to have this cheeky life hack. As you're chugging a glass of wine, you have a legit excuse for eyeballing your date from the feet upward. That guy's hearsay story I overheard zapped me back into reality. Now, I do know people who got hooked and would buy Red Bulls by the gallon in their subsequent college years as they were burning the midnight oil, usually for no academically valid reason at all. You see, we were a pre-monster generation, but I came to associate the beverage with that blood-curdling fatality story. Years later, I'd combed through research that defied the risk, given the reasonable amount consumed, but I'm not sure if it wasn't Red Bull commissioned research. McDonald's-sponsored studies argue for the benefits of melted cheese, whereas more or less unbiased research points to saturated fats posing a hazard and casomorphins found in cheese causing addiction. The bottom line here, save for Red Bull's effective marketing campaigns and attractive girls, is always check who pays the lab-coated piper. It turned out the exact same campaign was choreographed in London and elsewhere. If you ask me, I'd sprinkle it with more national-specific elements. I'm not a fan of non-specific blanket campaigns. One way or another, it did work wonders for Red Bull. 
The next thing they did to promote their brand and align them with someone to create firm associations in the consumer's mind was to organize the Flugtag Festival. History books, magazine articles, and anecdotal accounts don't agree on the year of the inaugural edition. Some say it was 1991, while others claim 92 saw the surreal fest kick off. Stats for my channel show that around 20% of my audience tune in from Austria. And some of them even implored me to do an episode on an Austrian story before switching to other brand tales. So if you're listening to this from Austria and you were hanging around the place in the early 90s, please help me out with the date. Thanks. Yet again, upon closer inspection, it's easy to see the competition didn't cost them ridiculous money. All they had to do was essentially choose a body of water, erect a 20-odd-foot-tall deck, drape their branded banners all over the place, greenlight the entrance, and voila! A crew of flakily-dressed pushers helped the weird contraption down the runway, the artistically designed undercarriage detaches and instantly plummets into the water, while the pilot glides on, trying to steer the hovercraft as far as possible, till it sharply descends and touches the water with a spectacular splash. Off the back of the popularity of the initial couple of runnings, Red Bull somehow built a reputation as a company endorsing and endorsed by extreme sports lovers. Odd, if you think about it. Several dozen merry wackos jumping off a cliff in a flamboyant parade of engineering failures, only for the jury to decide on the winner. All trumpeted as Red Bull's super creative contest. That very Red Bull that, as per their perennial tagline, gave you wings. More like a Boeing recruitment reality TV show gone psychedelically wrong than a risk-it-for-the-biscuit adrenaline-fueled exports event. What premises led to that conclusion? This question is better answered in marketing terms rather than in common logic. Anyway, the Red Bull Exports Association stuck. It would then keep working for the brand's image and identity in a vigorous and lucrative uphill fashion, almost dwarfing the Coke and Christmas or turkey and gravy combos. Ten years after the Flugtag was launched, its sister driving skills event, the Soapbox Race, would premiere to a similarly resounding success and see national iterations. But airworthy oddballs aside, one more thing stood out. Unlike in Thailand, where the drink was geared to truck drivers and nighttime laborers, as you may remember, in Austria the audience targeted was strikingly different. Perhaps truckers aren't that ubiquitous in Austria as they are in Asian countries or, say, the U.S., and would make neither primary consumers nor effective endorsers for buzz marketing to propel the drink's popularity. Mataschitz targeted people aged between 18 and 35. Anything beyond that 
wasn't covered by the ads or tactics. Also of note is that Red Bull didn't expand into foreign markets for five years. The beverage sales were banned in Germany as local scientists couldn't confirm its safety, citing the lack of research into the interaction of the listed ingredients. And yet again, it was Dietrich Mateschitz, who wasn't in the habit of rushing things and hopping onto the next developmental stage until it was absolutely due. Eventually, when German motorists lost their patience and started crossing the border to stuff their trunks with 24 packs of the buzz-giving nectar, sales were finally allowed in that country. It was 1992. A year later, British customers would be blessed with the privilege to wreck their circadian rhythms. As for a thirsty American crowd, the drink wouldn't grace the beverage aisles and fridges of the U.S. stores until 1997. And while spreading the gospel of round-the-clock vigilance step by step, Red Bull retained another unique quality. Mattishus and his crew refused to diversify their portfolio pardon my bureaucraties, and venture into adjacent market categories of no-juice sodas or kale mangosteen smoothies. No, Red Bull remained a manifestly single-product brand. How did Red Bull kick Ford's ass? Only to get its own butt kicked back 80 years later? Even more incredibly. How did the drink manufacturer go on to become Formula One's winningest outfit and pick Elon Musk for a manned flight to orbit? Well, sorta. Listen to our next episode. But while at it, let me whip out that bad boy. Here's the can. Here's the pull tab. Here's the pop. Here's the hiss. And here's... the kick. I'm airborne. Beware. Thanks for listening. I'm Roman, also known as Emperor Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, both here and on YouTube. I'm a behavioral researcher, a people watcher, and a marketing strategist. I'll be sharing practical stories like these from the world of unconventional advertising and useful behavioral insights in my weekly podcast. And by the way, the music is composed by a good friend of our podcast, Serge, who absolutely loves all things neuro and viscerally hates all things marketing. Hope your brain is having a snazzy week.